This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I'm your host, Lorez, and today we're going to be discussing the 1977 John Flynn film, Rolling Thunder. I found them. Who? The men who killed my son. Let's go clean them up. This movie, Rolling Thunder, caught my attention right off the bat through its advertising campaign from back in the day. I belong to a cultivation of people on Twitter that is commonly referred to as Film Twitter. And Film Twitter likes to propagate certain ideas that X movies that were overlooked sometimes need to uh, be remembered and garner a newfound respect, right? And this was the case. The earliest one that I can recall is the movie Sorcerer. Sorcerer's a William Friedkin film. I believe it was also 1977. And when it came out, it was a critical and financial disaster. Uh, in, in terms of being a follow-up to Friedkin's other works, like The Exorcist and The French Connection, it was not even in the same ballpark, as far as people were concerned. But if you go back to Sorcerer now, it has so much... There's so many fascinating things about it that make it an interesting watch. And it is a remake of the, I believe, 1940s film, The Wages of Fear. But it does something superior to that original version, which was met with higher regard when that was released. And this film, again, has been wiped out of people's memories. Until recently, around 2013, 2014 or so, People started talking about Sorcerer again. Sorcerer is getting a new screening. Da 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 da. And then a couple of years later, same deal with Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me, the David Lynch film that was also critically maligned. People hated Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me when it had been originally released by New Line Cinema in 1991 or 1992. It was right after the cancellation of the series and it was supposed to wrap everything up, or at least that was the perception of the Twin Peaks audience. And uh, given that David Lynch was on board, he didn't really bring the Twin Peaks sensibilities to that film so much as he brought his own David Lynch sensibilities. If you look at that film next to his other works like Lost Highway or uh, you know, Blue Velvet, something like that, it fits within that catalog of movies. If you look at it next to Twin Peaks Season 1 and 2, not so much. Now, obviously, tonally speaking, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is, if anything, a suitable bridge now in retrospect to what became the third season of the show, Twin Peaks The Return, because that's much more in line with that. But at the time, you know, you're a Twin Peaks fan. Your favorite show's just gotten canceled. You're expecting David Lynch to finally wrap things up, even though you know who killed Laura Palmer, but you want like a nice satisfying bow on top of everything that you've been through, through this phenomenon that has lasted two years. And what you get is anything but. And I can't imagine how unsatisfying that would have been as a film goer when that had come out. Uh, I know that I introduced that film to my girlfriend somewhat recently, and she utterly despised the movie and hated that they took such a serious approach with the Laura Palmer character and her family life, etc. And so there's maybe that aspect as well that makes it a repulsive film. 
But film Twitter decided, you know what, we're going to give this movie attention. And then shortly thereafter, you see that Criterion has acquired that movie and it's going to put it out on Blu-ray. So it could all be internal marketing from these distributors because I know that Sorcerer received a a version that was released on Blu-ray that was like an ultimate cut uh, somewhat recently and around that time as well. So let's get to Rolling Thunder because this is a movie that is currently being pushed out there as one of those films, though it does not have the same kind of attention that Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me or Sorcerer had when those movies made a resurgence. Rolling Thunder caught my eye because the marketing campaign from the 70s at least with the Japanese posters, seemed eerily similar to the movie Taxi Driver. You see Bill Devane and his gun holster, and he's in like a uniform, he's wearing sunglasses, and you're thinking to yourself, how have I overlooked this movie? There's a good aesthetic here to these, these advertisements. Let me look into this some. Oh, okay, directed by John Flynn. That's not a name that I happen to recognize, but it was written... By Paul Schrader. Okay, so this isn't a Taxi Driver knockoff. Maybe this is a, a cousin to Taxi Driver. Maybe this is a, a sister film. Well, I was persuaded to check this movie out. Uh, and instead of trying to find a stream that would give me access to this movie, because it's, it's quite scarce on the internet. You know, if you want to watch it on Amazon or something like that, it's going to cost you a little bit of money. Actually, I believe, I, last I checked, I don't even think it was available to purchase on Amazon as a streaming film. You had to go to Vudu or, or one of those old platforms that was around right when, you know, Netflix was just starting to take off as, as its own application. And, uh, you know, people were looking at Vudu as an option or an alternative. No, thank you. So I decided, you know what, I don't often do this, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy this movie on Blu-ray. Because I saw that Shout Factory or one of those distributors that uh, likes to pick up older films and refurbish them uh, had decided to put out a Blu-ray release. So I'm, I'm on board with that. The Blu-ray is pretty cheap, all things considering. It's only $13, although, I mean, considering how few people are actually buying physical media anymore, you would assume that they would start lowering the prices of those overall. I'm looking at 4K Blu-rays. I mean, who even owns a 4K Blu-ray player or television at this point? I think most people are just looking at their computer screens, but I digress. So I buy the Blu-ray. It's $13. It gets here in two days. And I have a screening with my girlfriend. And I can't tell you the level of disappointment that I felt watching this movie. Because in my head, I'm going into it thinking, okay, it's 1977, the greatest decade for movies. Paul Schrader. And I've been on a Paul Schrader kick recently, ever since I checked out, uh, when I first checked out First Reformed. Because it made me take a second look at his career. For the most part, my impression of Paul Schrader was... This is a guy who has made a handful, and by a handful I mean like three, good movies, and he didn't even direct, you know, probably two of those three. First Reformed was, for all intents and purposes, a miracle in Paul Schrader's career. The trajectory of a, a director, especially from that 70s, 80s time period, the New Hollywood era, 
has typically been you have a great career for about eight years. You drop off. You make movies that either comply with the studio demands or you go off to France or wherever it may be, take foreign uh, investor money and make movies that nobody is ever going to see. And I know that was the case with, I believe, Brian De Palma and probably Roman Polanski and uh, Francis Ford Coppola. You, you don't really hear about the movies that these guys are making. Some of the most iconic directors of all time. You don't know what the fuck they're up to. Francis Ford Coppola, I think he's more concerned with feeding his fat face. But, uh, you know, when, when it comes to uh, a Paul Schrader, who worked primarily as a screenwriter, and he aided some of the most legendary directors in the history of the United States. I'm talking about Martin Scorsese here. You know, these kinds of guys. It's quite possible that the screenwriter follows a different path than the director. Because although Paul Schrader is, I think, primarily known as a screenwriter, he wrote Raging Bull, he wrote Taxi Driver, he wrote this movie that we're going to get into at some point, Rolling Thunder, uh, his career as a director began, I think, in the late 70s with a Richard Pryor film. The name of that movie is escaping me at the moment. Then transitioned into uh, you know, Cat People and all these other films. I think American Gigolo. And then you take a look at his work around the aughts. And this is the same period of time where John Carpenter fell off with Ghosts of Mars and The Ward and these movies that nobody thinks about ever. Paul Schrader had made his prequel to The Exorcist Dominion. Warner Brothers wasn't satisfied with that. Even after the movie had already been completed, excuse me, they decided to pull the rug out from under him, say, we're going to trash this movie, we're going to recast these actors, except for Stellan Skarsgård, and we're going to hire Rennie Harlan, who is best known for Cliffhanger and Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. So it, you see where Paul Schrader ended up, and it actually turned out that his version of the Exorcist prequel wound up being superior to Rennie Harlan's film. Um, but then you take a look at where he went from there. And it wasn't pretty either. Uh, he went on to do The Canyons with Brett Easton Ellis and Lindsay Lohan, big mistake. James Dean. That movie's trash. The, you know, he, he, he decided to link up with Brett Easton Ellis, who has a, a book out today, the day that I am recording this, called White. And, uh, you know, audible.com. This would be a prime, prime real estate to just plug that sponsor. But you know what? Fuck them. Uh, he decided to do The Canyons, and that was a movie I was very intrigued by and I was not dismissive of. But the best thing that ever came out about that movie was an article in, I think it might have been the New York Times or LA Weekly, one of these publications that has since lost all of its esteem. And it was a piece that was documenting the creation of this film and all of the pitfalls that riddled it. Paul Schrader's weird, inappropriate relationship with Lindsay Lohan. And I've since learned from uh, the book, I, I believe it's called Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, which documented the entire uh, renaissance that was the 1970s. That Paul Schrader was seemingly used to having this Hitchcockian nature with his leading actresses. And, uh, you know, you just, you're just a weird guy. You see that a lot, though, with a lot of those old directors where they just feel almost entitled 
to being able to sleep with their lead actress. Peter Bogdanovich was another one who decided to try to abandon his wife and children for a potentially underage Sybil Shepherd on the set of The Last Picture Show. Real creeps during this era of filmmaking. I'll tell you that right now. But Paul Schrader, anyway, regardless of his proclivities on the set and off the set, uh, that Canyons piece was quite damning. And after reading that, I thought, okay, this is a guy who has no real worth or credibility as a filmmaker in Hollywood. He's washed up. There's no reason to pay attention to this man anymore. Then he decided to pick up Nicholas Winding Refn's scraps in The Dying of the Light, which was going to be a Nicolas Cage film that Refn was going to direct. I believe he wound up becoming the producer of the film. Uh, and it starred Anton Yelchin as well. The studio decided to steal this movie from Schrader and make it as marketable as possible as one of those direct-to-Netflix, direct-to-DVD, left-behind remake-style Nick Cage films that nobody pays attention to. I know that John Travolta has been really thriving at making these kinds of films lately. It started with Gotti, but then he had a, a movie where he was playing a like a boat racer or something, and uh, Matthew Modine was playing George H.W. Bush in that film. He had Speed Kills. That might have actually been the movie I was just talking about a moment ago. I don't know. All these movies blend together. John Travolta and his giant hairpiece. Meanwhile, you go on Instagram, he looks uh, completely bald-headed. It's quite the disturbing image, I'll tell you that. But Paul Schrader, again, we're getting off the point here. Paul Schrader is somebody who had no worth in my eyes, as a director at least. As a screenwriter, you know, that's maybe more open-ended. I did wind up checking out Paul Schrader's cut of The Dying of the Light called Dark, which he decided to pirate himself on uh, on the Pirate Bay. He decided to upload a torrent of that with a little notice and a PDF attached saying, this is my historical document of the film. If this makes me blacklisted, so be it. He's got balls, I'll give him that. Between uh, doing those sorts of things and then ranting on Facebook about the revolution, wanting people to take up arms because, you know, uh, global warming and Trump. And you see a little bit of that in First Reformed. And we've talked about that before with Jacob A. Miller, who was the last guest on the show, where it's hard to say if Paul Schrader accidentally made a work of genius with First Reformed or if it was intentional and he's just one of these people who seems mentally detached from his own work when he's just being himself as a person. I think Jordan Peele is another guy like that, where Get Out is really deeply on target. But then you take a look at Jordan Peele's persona outside of that film, at least on the internet and in interviews, and it couldn't be... It, it, it makes it hard to reckon with the idea that this is the same man who made such a daring piece of work with Get Out. Um, but, I, I again, we're straying quite far from Rolling Thunder here, which, again, big disappointment. I was expecting a hard-boiled revenge film. What I got was a man who enjoys suffering pain for 90 minutes. Tommy Lee Jones is in this movie. He's very young. His face is quite smooth. On the Blu-ray, yes, you can see some pock marks, but... He's still got all that Tommy Lee Jones magic that you remember from Batman Forever. And, uh, you know, th this movie, Rolling Thunder, doesn't quite utilize him in a way that I would have preferred. I would have liked to see a lot more of Tommy Lee Jones. But he's 
designated to the beginning of this movie and the end of this movie. We see a lot of filler in between those points where uh, William Devane, old Bill Devane, who I think he was selling cash for gold on on late night television, you know, on these paid programs at two in the morning, you'll find on like the Christian network. Uh, He plays the protagonist of this film. And I have to just pull up that character name real quick because I don't want to call him Bill Devane. Okay, Charles Rain, Major Charles Rain, returns home to San Antonio with Sergeant Johnny Voden. And Johnny Voden, I believe, is Tommy Lee Jones. He's got some problems. He comes home. Turns out that his wife has been fucking one of his friends. The friend fell in love with the wife and asked her to marry him. And as luck would have it, she said yes. Oh, isn't that just a beautiful image? I guess the impression was that because he was a POW, Charles Rain, that he was probably dead. So he was away for seven years. He was in Hanoi being tortured. And his wife decides to move on with a close friend. Big problem. Big problem to come home to. He gets awarded a a cash prize in like the the the, uh, the Medal of Freedom or I don't know some some bullshit like that, and it's all over the television, and so these scoundrels decide to find his home, stake it out, and then beat him to a pulp to get that financial reward. What winds up happening is you know he's a tough guy, he's not going to crack to you know some fat oaf a Mexican guy, and then a third dude who's completely unmemorable. No, 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 no. They torture him. He doesn't speak up. Nothing happens. And he winds up losing his hand. His family comes home early. They're gunned down in cold blood while he watches. What a man. Shows how being tough can really work out to your benefit in the long term, huh? He wakes up in a hospital bed, has absolutely no reaction to the fact that his wife and his children have been murdered. He's just stone-faced. And there is, there's one interesting thing that is dealt here, I think, by Paul Schrader. I, I highly uh, uh, doubt that uh, John Flynn had any influence on this segment of the movie or, or um, this particular piece of dialogue, in that Charles Rain is having a moment with the man who is fucking his wife. And he makes that guy put him into a bind. It's very fetlife.com. And he, he, he tries to talk the man into breaking his bones or, or getting close to cracking the bones of his arms. And he's like, the trick is you learn to love it. You learn to enjoy it. So this, this Charles Rain is a real sicko. He's a real freak. And I don't like that. So you got to think. He's watching his wife and his kids get gunned down. He's probably erect over that. He's, you know, he's, again, he's a sick man. If he's enjoying pain, he, he, you know, he spent seven years in a POW camp being tortured. And his key was, you learn to love it. He said love, you know, not like, not mildly enjoy, not trick yourself into loving it, but love. He loves the pain. He loves to suffer. He's a real submissive little bitch, this Charles Rain. So he's watching that happen. He has no expression. He's probably thinking, ooh. I just hit the lottery. I just got off in my pants while my, my hand is mush because they stuck it in a in a grinder, you know? And as you watch the film unfold, you, you start to wonder, is he even going to get revenge? Because he takes this, this, this real slam pig that he meets at a bar and he goes down to Mexico and he's like, we're going to kill these, these people. We're going to kill these people who killed my family. 
And what does he do? He doesn't do shit. He fucks the lady over and over again and walks around, puts her in dangerous situations where she could get raped and doesn't have much regard for her well-being. I think there's something else going on here with this Charles Reign. So eventually, by the end of the movie, I'm talking literally like the last 14 or 15 minutes of this film, which made it so disappointing because you just see him, you know, doddering around in Mexico doing absolutely nothing. Um, you get to the last 14, 15 minutes of the film. He goes back to San Antonio to meet with Sergeant Johnny Voden, a.k.a. Tommy Lee Jones. And he's like, I know where they're at. They're at a whorehouse right now. Why don't we go kill them? And then in the last 10 minutes of the movie, you get to see Tommy Lee Jones and Bill Devane uh, engage with prostitutes, then shoot up a whorehouse and kill these three guys like it's nothing. And it just felt like a gigantic waste of time. There's a real sickness to this film that I don't appreciate. And on the whole, I don't know if it was really well made. There's certain aspects of the cinematography that are interesting. And I think that the performances, generally speaking, are reasonably performed. Uh, but I don't think that any of the actors really excelled in their roles. And I don't know. I, I, there's a reason why this movie happened to be forgotten in in the analogs of history and why Taxi Driver was remembered. You know, that, that was a big point of contention and i was checking out the special features it was a big point of contention with the the advertisements they kept promoting this as from the and this this is kind of weird from the author of taxi driver referring to paul schrader the author of taxi driver which you know is correct i guess you know there is a novelization of taxi my immediate thought is book when you say author from the screenwriter of taxi driver from the creator of taxi driver paul schrader just funny wording there. Uh, so my, my, my inclination here is that this script was purchased before Taxi Driver came out. And maybe this was like a lesser script of Paul Schrader's that got greenlit. Then Scorsese picks up the Taxi Driver screenplay, goes and adapts that. It's a big hit. And this company and John Flynn is like, oh, cool. We have Paul Schrader's name attached to this movie now. This is going to do us wonders. And in reality, I don't think it got any kind of esteem. I have no idea what the critical reception of this movie was like. But I also have a feeling that it was a box office bomb or it just was lukewarm in its performance there. So, again, uh, Rolling Thunder, it's a movie that members of film Twitter may try to trick you into watching and... My only piece of advice for that is to say, avoid it. Don't check this movie out. It's not a terrible movie, but it's not something you should be spending 90 minutes on watching. Uh, apparently, and I'm just reading this right now, that uh, there were aspects of this movie that disturbed the audience in test screenings and resulted in uh, re-edits of the of the film in 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 the 20th Century Fox editing headquarters, which is really no surprise. Uh, but again, there, there's no saving this movie. I don't find it to be of interest. And uh, I'm also reading here that it was critically well received, and Quentin Tarantino called it one of his favorite films. Well, 
Quentin Tarantino also said that The Lone Ranger was one of the best movies of 2014 or 2015, whenever that came out. So you can only trust him to a certain point. You know, he's got a taste for those pulpy, older films that don't offer much intellectual stimulation. Although, again, I will touch back on the fact that I thought it was an interesting creative choice to have this guy be a, a complete sicko and enjoy the pain that he suffers. And that's probably why he is so reluctant to actually strike back against the, the these men who have done horrific deeds. And so I will be closing out this episode of Movies on that note. If you would like to contribute to the show and get episodes early and also just a plethora of other content, visual content, things like LP Japan or episodes of Comfort Systems, which we are currently in the midst of finishing post-production on the second episode of, head on over to patreon.com slash lowres and give a dollar or more per month. I know it sounds like very little, but if there are a hundred people giving me one dollar, guess what that means? It means that my website fees are covered. And eventually I do want to get all of my patrons currently over to lowres.live. I will be building a subscription-based platform within the coming months. Once, once I can figure out a financially feasible way to do that without Squarespace basically eating up all of my income, then that will be something that becomes a top priority. And also Patreon, I don't know if you've taken a look at Patreon as of late, they have changed the layout and the design of the website, and it is really repulsive. I find it so disgustingly plain that I, I don't visit it as much. And so I don't give as many updates. And I want to be able to do that somewhere where it's not going to be an eyesore. So I will be ushering in that subscription-based platform once I get a couple of more patrons and have... Uh, and and I, once I can gauge an idea of what the feedback is to an idea like that and also what the transition rate may be from Patreon to lowres.live. That, that will become priority number one once that occurs and i will give a plug to the sponsor because that also benefits me as well audibletrial.com slash lowres if you go there right now you can claim at least one free audiobook and guess what you can cancel immediately after you download it and i get to keep my $15 that I get from that, you get to keep your audiobook, and they will try to woo you. They will try to persuade you to stay on. So maybe, let, let's say hypothetically, you do like audiobooks, and you're kind of into Audible. Okay, you cancel, right? Or you're, you're going to be in the process of canceling, and they're going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you really sure you want to do that? What if we give you another audiobook? What if, what if we cut the cost in half? Because I think it's something like 11 to $24 a month. I don't know. That's outrageous to me. But they're going to be like, well, maybe we'll let you pay $6 a month for the first three months. Or maybe we'll cut the annual subscription fee in half. They'll do something like that. And who does it hurt? Jeff Bezos? You think he's really going to miss that money? His, his ex-wife just claimed $35 billion in that divorce settlement. Okay? So I, I want you to scam Amazon.com as much as you can. And they have gotten kind of tricky as of recent. I know that they put out drones and they make the UPS guys take pictures of the packages on your porch so you can't play any games with them. There's no funny business there anymore. But um, there's audibletrial.com. You absolutely 
can claim at least one free audiobook playing by their rules. And if you do try to uh, cancel, you may get a second audiobook or a reduced price subscription, which is kind of cool. Alternatively, if you really want to support everything that's going on here with movies, with Lowrez.live and Lowrez Wonderbread YouTube, all the shorts, we have a line of merch that is available right now at Lowrez.live slash store. You can buy hoodies, you can buy t-shirts, you know, summertime's coming. Or if you live in California or New Mexico, San Antonio, like Bill Devane and Rolling Thunder, you're going to want to wear those things all year round. And these are pre-shrunk t-shirts, so you don't have to worry about them, uh, you know, getting real close to the flesh after two to three washes. That's always a big problem. If you go shop at Primark, you get yourself a $4 graphic tee that looks stylish. Guess what? You're not going to be able to wear that after four washes, and that's being generous, okay? But if you buy my stuff, you're going to be wearing it every single day for the rest of your life. Quality material. I assure you of that, okay? And we will be ushering out a new line of merch very soon in accordance to comfort systems, movies, and everything else. And I might actually do a a line of shirts that is not related to anything of my own. I've been inspired by some of these, these retail merchants that are out there that have been doing movie poster style tees and hoodies. And I think I could easily get in the game of that. So maybe there will be a brand of clothing in the future. So that's all the things that are to come. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Movies, a podcast about the active cinema. I am your host, Lorez, as usual. And enjoy this track as we fade out of the show. I will see you next week. Take care and enjoy.